much time do you spend alone? Like, truly alone? Since about, oh, say March of 2020, the answer for me is not much at all. A little going back and forth to work in the car, but it's been my wife and me and the dogs at home together so consistently that I don't really know what to do when I'm alone anymore. Since joining the workforce, I've lived in cities, in small places with roommates, and then after moving out to California, I got a house and had roommates come and go. And then my wife and I got married, during the pandemic actually, and well, here we are. A life surrounded by people, and cars, and city buses, and dogs, and all kinds of noise. If there was a ghost mixed in with all of this, I'd hardly know it. It could be someone on the street corner, haunting our laundry room, could be banging on my walls for all I know. There's so much noise, so many people here that the activity of one more entity wouldn't be all that noticeable. But when you live alone, when you're out in the middle of expansive ranch land, just you and your cats and the occasional trip to the local cemetery, well, you'd bet your bottom dollar that you'd run into someone who's passed on. Or perhaps you work nights and the lights are the only company long after the cars have left the streets of your neighborhood and blanketed the world in mystery. Being alone in your place of work late at night, you're sure to at least get a feeling, right? That someone else is there? Tonight you'll hear about two ghosts, one in the form of a story and the other in a conversation with the author, Tom Stevens. Both gave me chills, and one left me with my jaw hanging. Both are true, though one fictionalized for you to get lost in. But before we start, find your headphones, turn out the lights, find a safe hiding place, and fall in to haunting season. As a boy in the 1950s, I was often one of the moviegoers at the Chief Theater in Greenlee. My mother had accepted a teaching position at Colorado State College, and we'd moved from Aspen, much to my dismay. Movies were among the few choices of entertainment. Through popcorn butter smeared glasses, I watched Clint Eastwood replace Roy Rogers, Marilyn Monroe replace Debbie Reynolds, and a neon Chief Theater marquee replaced the old painted Orpheum theater sign. My idea of cool changed as I became an adolescent and real heroes ellipsed the silver screen stars. Newsreels showed Jack Kennedy promise a moon landing. His wife Jackie trying to climb from a black Lincoln Continental convertible after shots rang out in Dallas. The riots in the streets of Detroit and LA seemed impossible in rural Colorado and the scenes of war I'd soon experienced firsthand were a world away. Films transported me into the action. Fantasy and fact melted together like two colors of wax, creating a trick candle I couldn't blow out. Irrigated cornfields stretched to the eastern horizon and raised the humidity of the Gulf Coast levels, making my sheets sticky in the second floor bedroom of my family's Victorian era home. More than 30 miles west to the mountains, but only a few blocks to the movie theater, where the cool inside 
sign, beckoned. Each blue letter wearing a white mantle of frost. Air conditioning was the only excuse I needed to spend a dollar. Any film would do as a refuge from that heat and the realities of growing up in a provincial town. But something didn't seem right in the balcony if I remained after the credits rolled. One of my high school friends, Ken Fielding, took a job as an usher in the old theater, replacing his brother, who died in Vietnam. At 16, Ken was six foot four, gangly with a hooked nose and a lazy eye that didn't follow the other. Advanced placement classes and basketball practice filled his days. Five nights a week, he worked. He was taking tickets at The Haunting of Hill House, a pre-Halloween movie, soon after his family got the killed-in-action notice. I shuffled forward with the line of fans, not sure what to say. Sorry, Ken, was all I could manage. After a moment or two, he replied with a ragged, That's life. He wasn't working the following week when a few friends and I modified the birth dates on our driver's license to get into a matinee restricted to age 18 and over. Blow Up featured a brief clip of a nude actress, a sure way to sell seats to teenage boys. The following evening, a Mounds candy bar rattled from the high school gymnasium lobby's vending machine. The wrapper crinkled in my hand as I opened the door to the basketball court. From the bleachers came huffing, alternating with rhythmic footfalls as Ken ran the gym stairs after a late practice. He descended, sweating and gasping, then stopped at the drinking fountain to flood his face with cool water. My pat on his back made him jump as if he'd been shot. We missed you at blow-up. Yeah, I, I heard. Not even nudity will get me back in that theater. What do you mean? I quit. I couldn't take it anymore. He sucked in a deep breath and another drink, then used a towel wrapped around his neck to wipe moisture from his face. The damn place is haunted. Haunted? We walked through the humid, fading evening air into a vapor-lamp-lit parking lot. The glare flickered as insects bounced off the bulbs. He stopped, opened his car door, grabbed a half-full bottle of warm Pepsi, and poured in a small plastic sack of salted shell peanuts. The rusty car reeked of old rubber, the odor escaping into the night. Not knowing what to say, I shook my head and remained silent. Ken sometimes worked after the late show to clean and paint the historic interior. In his time of stress, and as Halloween approached, it would be easy to imagine ghosts. But Ken was an altar boy and an explorer scout, honest and solid as anyone. Since losing their brother in Nam, his little sisters, usually bright students, were failing and skipping classes. His father stoically repaired typewriters in a home shop day and night searching for the backspace key to his life. If Ken wanted to share details, he would. He took another swig of Pepsi. Roy Carpenter manages the theater. He graduated with my brother. After a long hesitation, Ken continued. I told him I couldn't keep up the long hours. I blew out a breath in disbelief. That place always creeped me out, but it's probably only the horror movies. He's looking for someone to replace me if you're interested. A night job would be perfect for some extra cash. I wanted, no, I needed, a better car. Hauntings be damned. I called the theater and asked for Roy, but a female asked if she could help me. Without hesitating, she told me to report for work the next evening. She expected to be busy for Halloween. 
The elderly projectionist gave some brief instructions and almost ran out the door after the movie. I was stirring a freshly opened gallon of Benjamin Moore paint. The stage floor and walls around the screen needed to be flat black to keep reflections from bouncing back into the audience. After an hour or so, I sensed someone watching. Hard to say why, but I felt like an uninvited guest in a stranger's house. Setting my brush down, I turned and raised my right hand in a salute to block the overhead lights. Perhaps the projectionist had come back to work on the film projector. But at the top row of the balcony, the first seat left to the aisle, a white blouse reflected light into a woman's ashen face. I put the lid back on the can and wiped my hands on an old t-shirt I used as a rag. Hey, who's up there? The echo of my voice startled me. No response. No movement. Only an unblinking mannequin-like stare. Even at a distance, the woman appeared attractive, bewitching. Her hair, either short or done up in a bun, revealed high cheekbones and a smooth, pale complexion. Two staircases led to the upper lobby, one from each side of the theater. Dense, red velvet curtains hung at the doorways to the seating area on the second floor. Thick crimson carpet with a golden fan pattern still held the essence of popcorn, cigarette smoke, crushed junior mints, and spilled soda pops. I pushed through the curtain in the doorway, hoping she'd simply fallen asleep. The beam of my flashlight scanned the seats. Each sat silent and vacant as the tomb of the unknown soldier. When I rechecked the lobby, I found nothing. No one. I returned to the balcony, not willing to concede Ken's story might be getting to me. The seat she'd occupied was in the down position. As I raised it, musky perfume brought bile up my throat. The thought of leaving came to me, but I dismissed it. I'd lose my job if I didn't get some painting done before the manager arrived in the morning, so I went back to work. I dipped my brush into the can, but I couldn't help shooting a reluctant glance up at the balcony. A woman stood in the light of the exit lamp, motionless as death, the green nimbus illuminating her face. She faded like celluloid film melting from the heat of a projector bulb. Halloween. It had to be my imagination, or, or maybe the paint fumes were getting me high. I continued with tentative strokes, trying to cover walls stained with old memories. But my hands shook, and anxiety clung to me like a scared child to their mother. Overhead, the thuds and groans old buildings emit as evening cools the tar roof and the air conditioning vents expand. With a fresh coat of black completed, I open the lid to the salmon color for the ornate valance surrounding the stage. A small sheet of paint drifted down from the high theater ceiling. The familiar creak of a seat being lowered brought me down the ladder, gripping my paintbrush handle in my teeth. I dared not look from twenty feet up. I'd fall if I saw what I feared. Safely on the stage, I placed the brush on top of the paint can and grabbed my usher's flashlight. The beam cut a swath through the darkness of the balcony. Last row. First seat to the left of the aisle. Once again occupied. We're closed, man. No response. Can you hear me? 
The movie's over. Still nothing. Dashing through the theater before my courage faltered, I took two steps at a time up the stairs. Hesitating at the entrance to the balcony, I drew a deep breath and threw back the curtain. Only the dim wash from the stair lights greeted me. The seat I'd sworn was occupied moments before rested in the down position once more. All others remained upright, springs forcing them to attention. I lowered myself into her seat to prove my macho courage or confirm my delusion. The power of suggestion must have been messing with my mind, but the musky perfume lingered. Something warm and wet made me lift my hand from the armrest. In the faint light, a dark liquid ran down my arm. My sneakers slipped on the slimy floor as I jumped up. I rushed into the upper lobby restroom, my black Converse All-Stars leaving a crimson trail on the white octagonal tiles. I rinsed my hands and arms, blood turned pink as it mixed with the water and swirled down the drain. The mirror above the sink reflected a pale, skinny kid trying to grow sideburns, but a slight breath, or perhaps a subtle motion, stopped my heart. The woman's face appeared over my right shoulder. I froze, just long enough to doubt my eyes. No! My voice echoed off the metal toilet stalls. I turned around in terror, grabbing a towel dispenser for support. Nothing. No woman. Only red velour wallpaper peeling at the seams. I rubbed my hands on my t-shirt. The floors were spotless. My bloody footprints, gone. Not bothering to turn off the house lights or clean my brush, I hurried out the door into the steamy night air. A parking meter supported me as I tried to talk myself out of puking. Sweat from my armpits rolled down my side. I shook so violently. I struggled to unlock my 55 Chevy business coupe. It cranked several times. Damn it! Start, you piece of junk! My head rested on the steering wheel as hush-hush sweet Charlotte crackled from the radio. The face of the woman appeared in my rearview mirror, then dissolved as the engine whined and came to life. My car jolted as I slammed the transmission in reverse. Backing from the parking space, I sped onto the street and glanced over my shoulder to make sure no one was in the back. A curly mist drifted from the exhaust pipe appearing red in my taillights. The next day I called to quit, asking for the manager, the lady who hired me. Roy, the owner, said, There's no female manager, just the projectionist and me. Who are you? Hey friends, do you want to write scary stories like me but you don't know where to start? Well, let me tell you about a course I took online called Nightmare Fuel, which is presented by Autocrit, our sponsor. Guiding you through everything you need to know to develop and create amazing tales packed with fear and terror, Nightmare Fuel is an absolute horror writing survival guide. With a healthy measure of self-study, workbooks, videos, and intensive live virtual classrooms. 
In addition to the impressive breadth of knowledge from the teachers, the course also features exclusive and meaningful guidance from Rain Hall, gothic horror author and creator of the Writer's Craft Guidebook series. Okay, so you've got your money's worth right there, but let me tell you about the parts where I really benefited, and that's the private member community and the editing software. The Autocrit software is like hiring a great therapist. It's there to guide you towards making good decisions in your writing, but you still do the work yourself and make your own decisions. The software can run hundreds of reports that help you critique your own writing, pacing, and repetition, and it has taken my writing to a whole new level. Now, I made friends during the class, talented, hard-working friends who love to write stories like I do, and we were able to connect, to chat, share our work, and get feedback from each other without sharing personal information through the private Autocrit network, which for me is like if I could take my favorite social media platform and remove everyone who's not interested in what I like. I can't tell you enough how valuable this class has been for me, and they don't just do horror, they have sci-fi and fantasy as well, so if you're looking to get started in writing or you just want to take that next step to get better, check out hauntingseason.com autocrit. All right, so we're here with Tom Stevens, the writer of The Balcony Seat. Thanks for hopping on and uh, recording part of the show with me today. Well, that's quite a ride. It's my pleasure. Tell me about where did this story come from? What was the inspiration? Well, this story was partially true. It happened to a friend of mine when I was in high school in Greeley, Colorado. And he told me the story, and I didn't really buy it. But then years later, I talked to a projectionist that was had worked at the theater after my friend had long gone. He said, no, no, that, that woman wasn't a ghost. He said, she lived there. She she hid out there, and, and I could never figure out where she was. I, I could see her from the projection booth, but I never did locate her. She was always uh, hard to find, and I could never find anything about her other than I could just see her occasionally. And he was kind of old and strange anyway, and I thought, wait a minute, now I have two different people telling me that the same thing happened from two different eras, and they didn't know each other. And so the, the, the article, uh, stuff about it got written up in the paper over time, and they had paranormal investigators come in and take a look at the place, and then it was torn down. So I got the idea actually from a childhood experience, and it's actually in a novel that I have. There's a trilogy called The Cemetery Chronicles, and it's the second one in the trilogy, and the name of that novel is No Winter Maintenance. And so that's where the idea came from. And I, when I saw the writing contest, I pulled it out and modified it enough uh, to where it fit the parameters of, uh, of the contest and, and sent it in. That's great. So you've done quite a bit of writing in the past? Six novels. Uh, actually, the sixth one I'm working on right now. They're all ghost-related stories, uh, time travel, about early Colorado. They're multi-layered novels that have a lot of complex storylines and everything. And they've been through editing. I have a professional editor. And they've been through editing back and forth for about five years now. But when she's working on one, editing one, I'm working on another one, either starting one or doing all the corrections and the editing that she has suggested. And she doesn't check grammar and that kind of stuff. It's more structural type mm-hmm. things. And brilliant. You know, the word genius is overused along with heroes, but she is a genius. She comes up with some great ideas because 
none of my stories really fit a standard structure like novels are supposed to be, you know, with all the five commandments of storytelling and everything. They just don't fit that because they're too multi-layered. And so she comes up with these ideas to make the structure work for my style of writing. It's really been a fun adventure. I've just been writing now for five years, but I have a lot of work out there. I have a one short story book that has 50 short stories in it. And then actually the other four are full length novels. That's really cool. How, how did you go about finding an editor? I haven't gotten to that stage in my writing yet, but taking the autocrit class and hearing about it made me realize two things. One, it's going to be an essential part of the process eventually. And two, finding the right person can be really challenging. So how did you find this genius to help you out? It was luck. I'm in Aspen quite a bit, Aspen, Colorado. I live two hours away, but I've been going to Aspen since I've been young. And so they, Aspen is where the Aspen Institute is, which is a huge nonprofit. They support the arts, visual arts, performing arts, and they have one division that's called Aspen Words. They have a workshop, juried workshop every year. They bring in top Stanford professors and, and authors to teach these workshops for a select few people that they choose. And then people come from back east as far as Simon & Schuster and Henry Holt and all the big publishing houses come to Aspen along with a lot of agents and they interview the participants in the workshops. And so I was at one of these workshops and a lady said, if anybody needs an editor, I know one that is just superb. And she lives here in the Valley. And so I didn't think much about it because I didn't, wasn't really ready for an editor at that time. Later, I got to thinking, well, yeah, you know, this work does need an editor because it is just so complex. And, and I really don't have an editing background myself. My son's an editor, but I don't have him editing my work. And so I went into Aspen Ward's office there and, and they said, that's Kristen Carlson. And so they gave me her number and I sent her the premise of my first novel. And she called and said, yeah, I'd be interested in working with you. And since then, it just happened to be a very, very good match in that she is a very creative person. She's a playwright. So a lot of it has to do with luck, because if you have the wrong one, it really is going to drive you crazy. Mm -hmm. A good one will blow your work up. I mean, just dynamite it and destroy it. And that's what she does with my stuff. And it's less and less now that I'm starting to learn the craft better and starting to kind of get what she's after because she's taught writing at the university level and stuff. And so it's been kind of more like an instructor, a teacher to me, and also an editor. I tell you, that is so important that you have the right one. There is so many on the internet and you just don't know where to send it because they're going to charge and they're not cheap because they they really have some education and experience behind most of them. But still, you have to have the right personalities. Sure. Yeah. And I find like most things in life, um, making a personal connection with people is often the best path forward. There's, like you said, so much information on the internet and you never know what what's the right direction to go for yourself? It's making personal connections and having conversations and figuring stuff out together that often leads to the the best work. It, it is. And, you know, this, the industry, I was in several industries before I started writing and they were pretty merit-based. The harder you work, the better you work. 
or successful you were, that doesn't happen in the writing industry. You know, they, uh, it is such a chore to get into the traditional publishers that many people give up. And self-publishing now is really a, a very good option for many who want to get their work out there. And they're not overly concerned about becoming bestsellers or anything. They write for the enjoyment of it. And that's what I do. I get up every morning and look forward to to writing. And I'm retired and everything. I live on a remote mountain ranch. And there's a lot of ranching work that has to be done during the season. But in the winter, uh, it snows high in the mountains. And there's not a lot to do. And so I just... Uh, I concentrate on on writing during that time period. And then during the summer, there isn't a day goes by that I don't spend two or three hours writing. And it's therapy for me. I create my own worlds, you know, to where I can escape. And uh, it's just, it's really been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And, and whether I sell any books or not is really secondary. Yeah. And I have a cat going in the background. <laughs> That's fine. I love animals. So tell me about, you mentioned the uh, writing um, competition submissions for Haunting Season. And so for anybody listening who doesn't know, part of uh, a network of writers that is based around this class, Nightmare Fuel, that a lot of us took, or some of us took other classes that were provided by uh, Autocrit, who happens to be a sponsor of our show. So part of this episode, I wanted to hear about your how you discovered Autocrit and what taking the class was like for you. I discovered Autocrit just online. I, I realized that there was a lot of things that I was doing that really I didn't meet, need my editor to spend time correcting, like overused words, you know, where you use the same word three times in one paragraph and stuff. And you can spot passive sentences, which I don't do a lot. And repetitions are the thing that really can weaken writing is if there's a lot of repetitions, you just come across as really an amateur. It gives you a chance just to go through sentence by sentence and take a look at the structure of each one and say, you know, I can change that around or I can change the position of it in the paragraph and I can make this much stronger by doing it. I don't use a lot of thought tags or dialogue tags because I don't want to remind the reader that they're reading a novel. And that's really what it does. If you sink really deep into your characters, which I like to do and sink into the scenes or the scenes to where you hope your reader is immersed in that and loses themselves in your novel, there isn't anything that's distracting from kind of seeing this movie in their head. And so I know years ago, you know, Agatha Christie had, he said, she said in every line, because that's the way they wrote. We've really come a long ways in the writing process. You know, the, the classics don't hold up to me, to some of the stuff that's being written today. Of course, a lot of the New York Times bestsellers don't hold up either, because there's a lot of marketing that goes into those. And a lot of things goes into it other than the quality of writing. People won't notice a lot of things. Uh, if there's some things really kind of errors uh, as far as just structural items and stuff, but they'll realize that there's something wrong here and they'll lose interest in your book. So you have to have those subtle things in the background. And Autocrit really kind of helps me do that before I give it to my editor. And she still finds things because there's no 
there's no substitute for an editor. She still finds a lot of things that she suggests that I change, but it allows me time here at home to really sink into a piece and say, okay, these are getting pointed out as possible weak spots in this novel. And I pick up on that and sometimes I change stuff, but I think it's a good tool. Yeah, it's a remarkable piece of software to be able to calculate all of these things instantly and then give you uh, activities to do. It feels very comprehensive, but you also make your own decisions where you, you know you can choose to have your sentence structured the way you like it because that's how your character speaks. And you know it, it might be picked up as like, well, that's not proper you know sentence structure. Right. But sometimes you got to make that call because your character is not a computer. Well, and dialogue usually isn't correct, the grammar and stuff for many people. And so in order for it to be believable, it has to be off and people interrupting each other and stuff. And that's the way dialogue works. And so that stuff's always picked up by autocrit. And you can say, no, that's the way this person is. You know, they're not well educated. They're in the 1880s and people spoke differently in the 1880s than they do in 21st century. And a lot of my characters are in the 1880s. And they have those morals, ethics, and the dialogue of that time period. And it's not the same as it is today. What is it that draws you to that time period and also that draws you to ghost stories? I visited a graveyard. It's a little graveyard up kind of the east end of Aspen in a small, maybe 100 graves. And there was graves just are scattered around. They're not laid out, you know, in any order. And they're all mining era people. And I've been drawn to these same graves of these people that I never know. I, ne I never knew for 60 years, probably for a long time. And I always, every time I went up there, I felt this really, this kind of deep mourning sadness, this grieving. And I couldn't figure out why. And a couple things happened in that graveyard that kind of made me think that maybe these people need their story told. Because the rich and famous of Aspen, you know, in the, of the West, you know, they're in all the history books and the novels and, you know, they've been told. But these people have stories and they need to be told. There were two young gals. Both of them died, one at 33, one at 18. And those were two of them I stopped at. And... When I stopped at one of them, the music on my iPhone came up. Wow. And it started playing, and it wasn't anything that I remember putting on there. I can read you the lyrics here to it. It says, Hear my silent prayer, heat my quiet call when the dark and blue surrounds you. Step into my sight, look into the light. You will know that I have found you. Well, that just came on my phone, and I couldn't. You know, it's a female voice. And so there was this little black and white cat that was kind of walking around the cemetery. And, and he was, he'd stopped at that grave. And then I was looking away. He vanished. He was gone. And there was his tracks in the snow. So I followed him and they ended up at the grave of the other girl that I had often visited. Her name is Ida Chatfield. And she died at 18. And the grave was melted off. There was no snow on that plot, and there was snow every place else. And the cat tracks led onto that gravesite, and they didn't leave, and there was no cat around. So that cat vanished 
on that gravesite. And, I, and I, that sounds awful strange, but I've, yeah. I've listened to some of your podcasts and there's some strange things that go on. And I thought, what's happening? And then my iPhone lit up and the photo of this girl, very pretty, uh, big brown eyes and, and perfect complexion came on my iPhone, picture of Ida Chatfield. And uh, it was one that I did have on there because I'd been doing some research and I, I found her family tree. I was trying to trace her family tree and her photo was on there. So it was on my iPhone, but it pulled up right there, a picture of this girl right when I stand at her grave. And so that kind of got me interested in writing ghost stories. At that time, I'd read a lot of historical fiction and the people weren't right, the, especially the women. The women were 21st mm-hmm. century women dressed up in Victorian clothes. The morals, the ethics, the way they talked, the way they acted wasn't true to that era because I knew people of that era. My grandparents were of that era and my great aunts. And I knew how they perceived their own bodies and how they perceived what was right and wrong. You know, they didn't even want to show an ankle. Uh, It was just a different time period. And I read so many, even Pulitzer Prize winning novels that are historical fiction. And it's like, no, women weren't like that back then. It just doesn't ring true. And so I had decided to write something that did ring true. This story I submitted, of course, happened in the 50s. But most of my stuff happens in the 1880s, 1890s, and it's in the mining towns of Colorado. And so that's, that kind of got me started on that. And I never know where it's going to go. I don't outline. I don't write out a plot or anything. I just sit down and I start writing. And I can't stop because I don't know what's going to happen next. And I have to find out. And it sounds strange, but... I wrote the first novel called The Prodigy. I wrote 138,000 words in six weeks. And that's something because I don't type fast. I had this huge novel and the backstories going everywhere. Five generations of this family. And this haunting of a matriarch that had lost a daughter that she was doting on. And she wanted to be a figure skating star way back in the 1890s. The daughter fell through the ice and was drowned. The matriarch came back, my novel comes back, every generation trying to act like a matchmaker, eugenic type stuff, trying to create, recreate her daughter. Generation after generation after generation, she's haunting them. She's choosing the right mates for these guys, scaring the bad ones off. And, and for her, her male heirs, she's making sure that they meet the right girls. And so that's the prodigy. It's a lot of layers to it, a lot of characters. And so after editing, it's down to 98,000 words, you know, because there is a lot of backstories that I had to had to remove mm-hmm. because it wasn't driving the plot forward. I learned a lot just through writing that novel. And so then the next one was a little easier. And I was kind of keeping in mind structure a little bit more. Still needed a lot of work. And then the third one and the fourth one, they each one, I don't think of how is this going to end because I don't know until the mm-hmm. final page how it's going to end. So I'm as surprised as anybody. That happens to certain writers. Stephen King says that happens to him. 
Yeah, I'm the I'm the same way. I never I never quite know where it's going, and sometimes it runs out of steam, and sometimes I get you know all the way through to the end, and I'm like, well, that's cool. You know, I have no idea where it comes from. It just feels like it has to happen. <laughs> yeah, you have no idea, and the older you get, you just have more experiences to draw from. And I don't have family. I I live alone. And so I I don't get interrupted. And so it's really a lot harder for guys like you that do have people pulling them in all directions to kind of focus and stay on one thing and and kind of get through it. But uh, I have that kind of time and it it works out really well. Yeah, I think that's why my stories round out around five pages. Um. (laughs) Because you're interrupted. Yeah, yeah. But we'll get there someday. I'm excited to continue to push myself and with tools like Autocrit to help me, you know, get get to those next stages where I can start writing longer and, and get involved with an editor. That just sounds so nice. Yeah, the, the editor will just really kind of motivate you to keep getting better. They don't tell you a lot. They just kind of, they kind of guide you. And it, you go through a lot of rewrites you know, a lot of rewrites and they kick stuff out and they say, add to this scene, you know, or this scene is going nowhere, get rid of it, that kind of stuff. And so that really is helpful. And you hate to, some of those scenes are so well-written, you just hate to get rid of them. I mean, it's like, oh God, that's one of my favorite scenes. But in the grand scheme of things, it probably doesn't work as well in that novel as it could. So you just get rid of it and you write something else. Yeah. And you never know, maybe you could repurpose it someday for a for a story where it fits better. It's more essential. Well, I'm doing that now. I've pulled stuff out of my first three novels. And they say the fourth one is short stories. And the fifth one is actually a narrative of a guy, first person to ride his bike around the world, penny farthing type bike. His name was Thomas Stevens. He was an ancestor of mine. And he rode around the world and wrote for Harper's Weekly. And so he had... A huge book that he wrote about uh, that trip around the world. And so I wrote kind of uh, something that's a little bit more politically correct than the way he wrote. So it's a little bit more acceptable to the general public today because he he thought like the people in the 1890s. And so, and then the sixth one I've taken and I'm pulling stuff out of the first novel that's in ideas and characters and expanding on those characters. You know, I'm taking those backstories and using them now. Because somebody buys the first one, they're probably going to want to read about who these other people were. That's, that's how I work. That's great. So where can people find your writing? Where can people find your novels? By emailing me if they want to be a beta writer. And I guess I could send them a manuscript. But I, I haven't published anything yet. I'm still kind of torn which way to go on that. I'm not sure I want to really waste a lot of time trying to find an agent And then have that agent try to sell my book and go through all the process for very little. They don't pay very much, I tell you, for very little. And I think I'd rather spend my time writing. And so there are a couple of really kind of hybrid houses Mm -hmm. that they do have a gatekeeper. And so they take a look at your work. They see if it's quality enough. And then they don't charge you anything, but they spend do all the marketing they do all of the cover design with your input and some editing with your input, which you don't get a chance to do sometimes with publishing houses. And then they turn it out and they take like half of your book 
for the first six months or something or until it pays out, and then you get a larger percentage after that. And that sounds like more of an attractive option to me, but I'll just have to see. Right now, I'm not overly concerned. I can always self-publish. I think that's kind of the way the industry's heading. There's an awful lot of really talented mm-hmm. writers out there that never get their work published because they don't want to have the hassle of contacting 800 agents and getting 800 rejections and finding the right agent. It's kind of like, how do you find the right editor? Well, try finding the right agent. Most of them don't even return your phone calls. And I've had some of them say, I love your work. Send me everything you got. And you send it to them and it's last you hear of it. Yeah. It is, uh, it's frustrating. So I'm glad to see self-publishing is allowing some authors to get their work out there. Uh They may never hit any bestseller list, but it's out there and they're enjoying it. And that's really what it should be. Yeah, well, that that makes this episode just a little bit more special then. Uh, Thanks for letting me put some of your work out there on the internet for people to hear. I really enjoyed it and I can't wait to read more of, of what you have to share with the world. Well, I have other short stories I can always send in. I think some of them are actually better than this one because I've written them more recently, you know, so I think I've improved a little bit over that piece of work. But that one is uh, one that really fits into my novel very well. And there's a short story. I think it's, uh, it's okay. Well, I liked it very much. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome, Josh. Hunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and is a joint production of Matt Gillen and Believe Limited. Special thanks again to our guest Tom Stevens and our sponsor, Autocrit, who connected us through the Nightmare Fuel Horror Writing Course. This show is executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan and Matt Gillen, and produced by Keith Corneluk. Today's episode was edited by Gary Bernard. Music for the podcast was made exclusively for the show by North Innsbruck. If you want to get more involved, find Haunting Season on TikTok for horror talk and movie reviews. Thank you for listening to this episode, and remember, we're more likely to survive if we stick together. We'll see you next time. Thank you.